You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Alfred Beauvais, president of the American College of Cardiology. Defibrillator lead extraction is often required for patients who experienced a lead failure many years after original implantation. But an increasing number of patients may face a premature decision about whether to have a lead extracted in the wake of device malfunction and recalls. What benefits and risks should physicians bear in mind when discussing this procedure with patients? Our guest is Dr. Charles Love, professional of clinical medicine in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and director of the Cardiac Arrhythmia Device Service at Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, Dr. Love. Thank you, Dr. Bovey. This is a very interesting topic, which has uh, reached the level of the newspapers over the past year or so. It would be interesting to hear from you about what you think the number of patients in the United States is that have either defibrillators or pacers implanted that might be at risk for a lead extraction. Well, potentially, anybody who has an implanted device at some point may require an extraction for one of many reasons. Certainly, the, the recalls and alerts that are out there receive the most press. But actually, the most common reason for us to remove leads, uh, as it turns out, is, is infection, pocket infections and endocarditis, which the incidence of these entities has actually been on the rise over the last several years. Thanks. And, and I think this, again, makes a, uh, an important distinction between just these mechanical lead failures that have been publicized and some of the other things that we encounter on a day-to-day basis in our practice of cardiology. In this large pool of patients, what do you think the percentage of patients who might need a lead extraction is? I understand it's pretty small, but uh, still important for the individual patient. That would be correct. I I think if you take all comers of all people who have implanted devices, we're talking a very small percentage, maybe 1% or 2%. But when we talk about the vast numbers of people that receive devices, half a million devices implanted annually worldwide, even a small percentage turns out to be a very large number of patients. And if the lead is functioning normally, uh, is there any reason to change it later on, uh, many years later? I know that the pacemaker itself has changed, but would there be a reason to change a lead if it was working fine? There would probably be two reasons that would come to mind to replace a normally functioning wire. Reason number one would be the wire has been found as a class or a model to have a high failure rate. And even though that particular lead in that individual patient is working normally at the, at the moment when one evaluates it or the patient is coming for a replacement of their device, the failure rate may be significant enough that it would be prudent to replace the wire, especially in a pacemaker-dependent patient. The other group of patients that we would consider removing a normally functioning wire in, the most common reason would be, say, an upgrade from a pacemaker to an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, at which time we would want to change from a pacing lead to an ICD lead. Certainly, the, the leads have some commonality to it, but they, obviously a pacemaker lead doesn't have a shock coil. In a younger patient, we would rather take a lead out earlier in the duration of implantation than later. Earlier extraction of a lead turns out to be easier and safer than waiting many years. What are the reasons that you might have to do a lead extraction? I mean, we know, again, from the public information about failure of leads, but what other things would cause the need for a removal of a pacemaker or a defibrillator lead? Well, I think we've, we've touched on a couple of the, the very important ones. Certainly infection. I think that, that the 
incidence of infection as it has risen as we operate on patients who have more comorbidities, diabetes, renal insufficiency, these people are at high risk. We are seeing more pocket infections, more endocarditis, certainly, and we also see occult sepsis, recurrent staph bacteremia that doesn't seem to resolve with antibiotics. And these people, we consider them all class one indications for lead removal. Another group of patients that has become relatively common is when patients are coming in for upgrades or addition of new leads, we find that the vessel is occluded. The the vein through which the previous leads have been implanted is completely occluded. As a result, we have a choice. We can go to the other side and risk damage to the vessel on the other side, potentially risking superior vena cava syndrome, or we can choose to extract one of the functioning leads, reconstitute the vessel, and then implant new leads through that occluded vessel. We are also seeing patients who had devices implanted many years ago and have had lead failures and more leads implanted. And we've seen patients through our electrophysiology laboratory that have come in with up to nine implanted leads. And that's just at some point you've just choked off the superior vena cava. We're generally recommending now that we don't allow more than five leads to be present through the superior vena cava with maybe some rare exceptions of a very infirm, elderly kind of person who who may have some uh, limited lifespan. These are the three main groups. And of course, there have been some interesting lead designs over time that the lead design in and of itself posed a direct threat to a patient. And the, the, the lead model that comes to mind for those who've been around pacing for a while is the AccuFix lead that had a metal spring wire that could protrude and perforate the heart and potentially cause pericardial tamponade or aortic perforation. So removal of those leads was felt to be an important issue to prevent potential damage to a patient. Those are the main issues. Certainly the class one issues revolve around reconstituting vessels, dealing with infection, and patients who have just multiple, multiple leads. The patients who have leads that have been publicly identified as those at high risk for uh, failure oftentimes show up in a physician's office requesting a lead to be removed, even though it may be functioning normally. How do you normally deal with that situation? And this is a really common question. I'm glad we're going to get to this because it is as everything that we do in medicine, it is a balance of risk. There is a risk of taking something out and there's a risk of leaving something behind. In the situation, and there are just so many patient situations that one could discuss, certainly let's take one of the easier ones. You have an elderly patient who is not pacemaker dependent, who has a normally functioning lead. They're not very physically active. We know that in that particular cohort of patients that we have a very low risk of lead failure of the current lead that's gotten all the press. And as a result, the risk of the operation would certainly exceed the risk to the patient of leaving that lead behind or continuing to allow the patient to live with that lead attached to the current generator. The risk of infection of a device changeout is actually in the range of 2% for an ICD. People don't recognize that. They think that the risk of infection just by opening a pocket, it should be less than around a half a percent thereabouts. And that's true for a new implant, but replacement of an ICD, when you go into that avascular pocket, the risk actually jumps up to around 2%, as high as 4% in some series. So we've got to balance that risk against whatever risk there is of leaving something attached to a device or replacing it. So in this one patient that I, that I, I just presented, this is someone who the risk of, of replacing the lead is clearly greater than the, list, the risk of leaving it intact and operating. 
Let's take the other side of the spectrum, say a relatively young patient to mid-20s uh, who has had a previous cardiac arrest, maybe is pacemaker dependent. This is a patient who is, who is more active, who's going to be more at risk for a fracture of this lead. As a result, we know, as I, as I noted a little earlier in this conversation, the longer a lead is in, the more difficult it is to remove. The more fibrosis builds up around it, the more attached it becomes to the endomyocardium and to the vascular structures, making the extraction more difficult and actually increasing the risk substantially. So in this patient that we think is, is going to be at high risk should this lead fail, this is someone that we would say, let's get that lead out more early in the life cycle of the lead, not wait until it fails. Get it out now where it will be easier and more safe to do so and put the patient at overall less risk for multiple inappropriate shocks from an ICD and potentially asystole if the lead were to completely fail. The problem we have is I just gave you uh, two extremes, and obviously in medicine things are rarely black and white. There's a lot of gray in between, and that's where using a good clinical judgment and knowing the capabilities of those who are doing the extractions for you and really balancing this risk. It's not as much of a risk-benefit as it is a risk-risk. There's a risk to leaving it behind and a risk to taking it out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alfred Beauvais. Our guest is Dr. Charles Love, professor of clinical medicine and division of cardiovascular medicine and director of the Cardiac Arrhythmia Device Services at Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. We're talking about defibrillator and pacemaker lead extraction due to a variety of reasons, including the well-publicized device failure. So let's go on and talk a little bit about the process itself. I think it's a, an interesting process because I think, as you said, there's a risk for extraction. And tell us a little bit about the skill needed to be a person that does lead extraction. Elite extraction has kind of taken a similar track that, if you re remember back where balloon angioplasty used to be. It used to be you went and went to a one-day course somewhere, watched somebody do a couple of them, and then you went back to your lab, bought a balloon, and started blowing it up in a coronary artery. Nobody in their right mind would do such a thing today. In fact, there's a full-year fellowship that's required to become an interventional cardiologist. However, until recently, and even currently, we see this level of training being applied to lead extraction. And it's been one of my crusades to, to enlighten people to the fact that this is simply not an adequate methodology for training people in a procedure that has significant morbidity and mortality risks to the patient. So we recommended a bare minimum, and this, there was some controversy about this when the, the current recommendations were, were published. We wanted a little bit more stringent training, but the reviewers were not quite as keen on that. But we recommend a minimum of 30 procedures in training of doing lead extraction before one is actually out there doing it. On the other hand, we do find the complication rates decrease with experience and the efficiency and ability to completely remove leads increases with experience as well. And this continues on up until you get into several hundred leads under your belt. So certainly before one were to choose a physician to refer a patient to or when a patient is looking for a physician to perform such a procedure, I think one would use the same kind of criteria that one would use, say, for having any invasive procedure. How many procedures have been done? What is your complication rate? What is your success rate? And we oftentimes quote global numbers. Well, we say, oh, the literature says the risk of this is X, Y, or Z. But what is really important is what is the risk 
at this particular institution with this particular physician. And patients uh, rarely ask these questions, and, and we as referring physicians oftentimes rarely ask these questions. So I strongly encourage that anybody who wants to do lead extraction or is referring patients for lead extraction look for patients or look for physicians that are appropriately trained and have a reasonable degree of experience and good solid training, not just a see one, do one type of training approach. Thanks. And I, I think your point is well taken. 30 procedures while in training, what do you think should be a, a reasonable number on a yearly basis for somebody that wants to say they've got good statistics on outcomes in the, in the procedure? Well, personally, I like to see somebody doing a procedure like this on a very regular basis, but I think that the published recommendations in our document run somewhere around 20 procedures a year. I always say, would I go to somebody who did a PCI 20 times a year as the person is doing my PCI. And I'm not real comfortable with that, but the reality is is that for most physicians in practice, the need for lead extraction is fairly small, a few cases a year perhaps. And so it's hard for an individual practitioner to get very proficient at this. And as a result, they have to be referring these cases out. And yeah, physicians are kind of funny. They don't like to refer cases sometimes. They like to keep things in-house in their own hospitals and, and for themselves. So I would say a minimum of 20 cases per year would be necessary to maintain some semblance of proficiency in these techniques. Good. And this is a procedure done in an electrophysiology lab. I mean, this doesn't require a surgeon in an operating room and so on, I assume. Well, the, the, I'm going to give you two answers to that, yes and no. It, this procedure can be done in an EP lab or in an operating room. There are many physicians that do this that prefer to do it in an OR. The reason being is the main complication that we are concerned about is a vascular tear or a myocardial tear causing either hemothorax or hemopericardium and pericardial tamponade. When this happens, the difference between life and death in these patients, the difference between a complication and a mortality is how quickly do you get this resolved? How quickly is the chest opened and the hole patched? And in order to do so, this must be done at a hospital where open-heart surgery is available, pump teams are available, and a cardiac surgeon is on-site and available. So having a surgeon at another hospital on-call to come over and bail you out is going to be insufficient because when the complication occurs, there is, is precious little time to react to it in order to salvage the patient. Right. So if you're going to refer a patient for lead extraction, you really want to be looking for a center that's got somebody that's doing at least 20 a year, that has a surgical team that's a little bit familiar in how to do this, and has this whole thing organized to manage the complications if and when they occur. That would be great advice. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Love. We've been talking with Dr. Charles Love about the challenges of defibrillator and pacemaker lead extraction and some of the reasons we might want to do that. And I'd like to thank you again for being our guest on the program. Dr. Bovey, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.